Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Hello, I'm Gavin St. James, the junior producer for What the Hell Were You Thinking? It is June, and that means it is our new annual Pledge Drive Month, where we ask you to support What the Hell Were You Thinking and all the fine podcasts on the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. It's also the month of host Dave Bledsoe's birth, and he feels that alone should compel you to help in any way that you can. Of course, he would prefer that help in the form of monetary compensation via our Patreon, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast, but he would only use that money for liquor, cigarettes, and the company of sex workers. Those poor women. No one should have to endure that. So perhaps you will feel as queasy as I do about that. You can also help by recommending the show to a friend. Take their phones, follow the show on their podcast app, or perhaps spam them on their social media. It helps others find the show and understand the living hell I endure every week working with that man. Also support the good shows on the network. Head over to SeltzerKings.com and find something that does not have a raging alcoholic egomaniac. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. It's not theft, Gavin. It's cultural reappropriation. It's sticking it to the man. My God, you're so unhip. I'm surprised your bum doesn't fall off. Ass. The following podcast contains. Oh, ah, what the f did you do that for? Hey, that was. Don't swear. What are we? We're we we not swear. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you downloaded the entire back catalog of Debbie Boone just because it was on Napster, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 318. It's a pirate's life for me, part two, downloaded from Napster edition of the show where we talk about the rise and fall of stealing music just because it was on the internet. Stay tuned. The uh, What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is uh, brought to you by uh, PolkaSongs.com, the free streaming polka song library with uh, unlimited downloads of your polka favorites. Are you a polka fan on the prowl for some sweet new tunes from fresh hot artists like Eddie Blazonic and the Versatones or Walt Solek, the Clown Prince of Polka? Of course you are there. If you're tired of paying the outrageous record store prices, Head on over to polkasongs.com and show the man that polka music should be free. Our peer-to-peer searchable database of polka music will guide you to exactly the polka songs you are looking for. Be it a common one like Happy Valley Polka or even a rare like uh, Dodsworth Polka Quadrilles. It's all up on polkasongs.com. Eh? Using technology from defunct file sharing sites on the early aughts, we, uh, we keep the free music fervor flowing. One Whoopi John Will Fart song at a time. Polkasongs.com there. We're keeping the Oompa alive. Like, good afternoon. 
afternoon. My name is, you know, like Lars Ulrich from Metallica. I've worked for years to get where I am today. Years and years of playing clubs and recording demo tapes. Me and my buddy, like James Hetfield here, have shed blood, sweat, and motherfucking beer to get where we are today. Beer! Good! And now we're fucking wealthy beyond, you know, like belief. So where was I? Oh, yeah. All you post-pubescent boys who have bought, like, our albums and our t-shirts and our concert videos and... and, and, and t-shirts! Good! Yeah, t-shirts. You loyal fans who, like, bang your heads at our concerts and pay, like, $200 for a ticket, $20 for, like, a CD, like, $50 for a Metallica t-shirt, and, like, $100 for a genuine Metallica cock ring. You're all fucking awesome, and we'll never forget you. You fucking made us rich. You fucking made us popular. You got us under the cover of, you know, like, Kerrang! magazine. I worship you. You, the Metallica fan. Beer! Good! Unless you download it until it sleeps from Napster. Then you're going to motherfucking jail. You're motherfucking meat. You'll be some fat, greasy, tattooed bastard's buttery cornhole. Who do you think you are? A team of lawyers and researchers have your names, and we're going to hunt you down like the table scrap pilfering grab asses you are. Grab asses bad! So to conclude, rock on, Metallica fans. We'll see you on tour this summer. And you Napster users, we'll see you in jail getting gang raped. Do you want to know how much fucking money there was in the recording industry back in the 70s and 80s? I could see by the look on your face you don't, but... Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. The record companies were so rich, they were willing to sell you record albums that they knew you weren't going to pay for. How does that even work? Well, if you're in my primary demographic, you already know how that works. But for the six of you under 40 who are listening, it goes like this. In every goddamn magazine published, there was this little cardstock. And on that cardstock, you would fill out nine album selections that you would receive for just one shiny penny. And in return, you promised to buy a set number of albums in the future at the regular price. There were no credit cards, there was no bank info, just a name that you said was yours and an address. And they believed you? I have a very believable face. No, God, no, they didn't believe that. They knew damn well that at least 40% of us were never gonna buy those other records, but it didn't matter. That's how fucking rich the record industry was. You see, Columbia House Records, which is what it was called, operated on a very simple plan. Yes, it's called mail fraud. No, technically that's what we were doing. Their plan was, first of all, most people do have integrity, so they did buy those other albums at an enormous markup to make up for all that stolen music. The other thing they did was sell albums that already made all the money they were ever reasonably going to make. You didn't get new releases from Columbia House. You got records that were already out for at least three or four years. Their chart run was over. They'd already made millions of dollars. So if some teenager stole Michael Jackson's Thriller five years after it was released, the record company wasn't really out much money at all. The 40 cents or so it cost to press and package the album, max. They could afford to risk negligible loss on the off chance they could land an honest person who would pay twice what they could get that out before used or on the discount racks at their local record store. It was the kind of thing the record company understood well. Old music is dead, and the kind of people who paid for dead music were at best suckers. So I never felt the slightest remorse for ordering 10 more record albums every time I changed addresses 
which when I was in the military was a lot. In 1877, Thomas Edison created the gramophone. Music could be stored now on wax cylinders and played on devices in the comfort of your own home while you were banging the wife or sitting there in your underwear. And that revolutionized how people listen to music. Prior to this, music was either played by you or listened to at a venue. After Edison, you could listen to music pretty much anywhere. We covered this part last week in part one, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time rehashing that. Just go listen to episode 317. For decades, small studios recorded albums or distributed them via local networks. The music was recorded live in single takes, and the quality? Kind of shit. But in 1948, a guy by the name of Les Paul, yeah, the guy who made the guitar, and changed how music was recorded and heard. It also changed how much it cost to make a record album. This opened the door for music companies, and that's where things got real. From musicthinktank.com, quote, record albums who brought together composers from the publishing industry and musicians from the live industry and created vinyl for the recording industry would employ people to find upcoming talent to put the right musician with the right song in the right studio with the right producer or sound engineer and release the record at the right time. These people became known as artist and repertoire representatives or A&R reps who went on to pick and choose the successful artists we see today, unquote. If there's one thing you need to know, It's that the recording industry since day one has been a massive fucking grift. Taking in billions of dollars for the people running the labels and giving as little back to the artist who made the music as possible. Sounds about right. They figured out early on that people love jazz music and jazz music meant black musicians and black musicians meant that people, they were people they could easily exploit. After all, the thinking went, Who's going to take the word of a Negro over a nice white businessman like me? So they ripped off black musicians, paying them a pittance for their music and selling it for a fortune to the white people. Then, after World War II, folks came home from the war all horned up and boy, did they fuck. They fucked so much, they created a shit ton of babies who would grow up to consume a lot of music. And the music they consumed came largely from black performers and a new genre called rock and roll. Chuck, Chuck, it's Marvin, your cousin, Marvin Barry. You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this. And that genre was promptly stolen by white people and exploited for all it's worth. Black musicians fought for decades to get their share of the stunning profits made off their creations. Many of them are still fighting today. But even the white people were getting fucked by the recording industry, as they are today. From a report by Citigroup, who know a thing about fraud and graft, called Putting the Band Back Together about profit distribution in music that was written in 2018. Quote, In the U.S. music industry, generated $43 billion in revenue, matching the prior peak in 2006. While business-to-business revenues and music ads are flattish, consumer outlays are at all-time highs. Artists' share of the revenue is small. In 2017, artists captured just 12% of music revenue, with most of the value leakage driven by the cost of running myriad distribution platforms, AM radio, AM FM radio, satellite radio, internet distributors, augmented by the cost and profits of the record labels, unquote. Damn, dog. 
This was three years ago. And this is almost double the amount that musicians were making in the year 2000. And that was before the big fucking collapse and pretty much the last big years of the music industry. Go ahead and Google contract dispute in music industry and you'll see how it goes. Taylor Swift is in the midst of re-recording her entire back catalog to claw back some of the profits she lost by signing a shit contract as a 15-year-old. Remember that time Prince went by just a symbol for a few years? That was a contract dispute. Tom Petty declared bankruptcy to get out of a bad contract. There isn't a big musician out there who hasn't struggled at some point in their, with their label, and they're the lucky ones. The musicians that don't make it big often come away with nothing or actually owing for their efforts, even if their albums made money. Lesson number one, read the fine print. So, you know, people don't have a lot of sympathy for music labels in general. Back in 1999, they stuck a knife in the back of the corrupt industry that pretty much caused the entire steaming pile of shit to come sliding down. And it was all because of one dude, Sean Fanning, who had a crazy idea. Napster. 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 It's called file sharing, seen by some as the wave of the future. But not everyone was cheering Napster's rise. College students are making good use of the internet. The latest software makes it a bit too easy for students to access their favorite tunes. No longer do you have to go to a store and plunk down money. From 84 to 2000, the music industry made so much freaking money selling CDs. First it was hair bands, and then it was grunge bands, and then it was uh, boy bands. I mean, it was a great time to be in the business. 1999, you know, you had two or three records come out in one week, sell a million records. You actually had to drive your car to the Tower Records and buy a CD for $18 to get the one song you liked. And so that was a good model. It made the industry tons and tons of cash. Selling millions of Chumbawamba albums with one good song was an economic boom. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty, we got to talk just for a minute about the internet in 1999. Do we have to? We do. For the vast majority of users, the internet was still a dial-up experience meaning you topped out at a whopping 56 kilobits per second and you never actually got that fast. Come on, pick it up, you slow poke. But in certain places, on the cities, and on college campuses, something new was happening. Broadband. DSL carried over phone lines could max out at 20 Mbps, which was warp speed compared to dial-up, and with cable, you could hit 100 Mbps, and that was like taking the ship. Prepare ship for ludicrous speed. And on college campuses with T1s and T3 lines, well. They've gone to plaid. Anyone who downloaded a file on dial-up knew that you were going to be there for a while. But all of a sudden with broadband, that Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson sex video went from days to minutes from the internet to your computer. And this was the technology, over and above what Napster did, that made music piracy possible. Napster just made it easy. Before Napster, you could find MP3s on the internet. If you know where to look. And this was before Google. I mean, I don't know if you kids can imagine what it was like when Yahoo was your premier search engine or maybe Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves? Nobody uses Ask Jeeves. Just Google search it. You couldn't because Google wasn't a thing yet. So searching for a specific file was nigh impossible. People had the files on their computers. They were willing to share them with you if you ask. 
but finding them was the blockage. And this was the problem that young Sean Fanning faced in his dorm room at Northwestern University in 1999. From The Guardian, quote, In about 1998, someone with the username Napster reveals to those present in an internet chat room that he'd been working on a piece of software to fix the problem. It would allow people to dip into each other's hard drives and share their MP3 music files. In the chat room, people scoffed. Share? Why would anyone do that? But Sean Parker, an aspiring entrepreneur, liked the idea. He was 18, skinny, with jilled up red hair and a tendency to look at the floor when he spoke. Parker suggested they collaborate, and he met Napster, or Sean Fanning, for the first time in person. The term Napster passed, of course, to the piece of software Fanning was coding. Working on a borrowed PC at his uncle's Massachusetts office, sleeping in a nearby utility cupboard in order to conduct days-long programming sessions, Fanning had finished the product by the spring of 1999. Parker, meanwhile, had wheedled $50,000 from investors, and the pair moved to California. Friends from the chat room were hired as staff, and Napster was launched in May of 1999. By October, it had 4 million songs in circulation. By March of 2000, when for my part, this is the author of the article speaking, I'd already siphoned off a few hundred of those 4 million. The Napster community numbered more than 20 million, unquote. When Napster broke, I, speaking for me now, already had broadband as I lived in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and I quickly discovered how easy it would be to complete my music collection. You mean you're going to steal it? Tomato, tomato, people, come on. Look, we were all pretty sure the whole internet was going to collapse on December 31st anyway, so where was the harm? Within a few months... I had six or seven hundred songs downloaded from bands as diverse as Led Zeppelin to the Backstreet Boys. And that was the beauty of Napster. If you wanted a song, someone among the millions of users had it. If I wanted a deep album cut from John Denver, I wasn't going to pay 15 bucks for a CD with only the one damn song I wanted. I just downloaded it from Napster. John Denver had already gotten paid. His albums were decades old by then. It was the moral equivalent of Columbia Music House. Also... I think John Denver was dead by then. Damn, dude. Harsh, right? That's how Napster works. There were no server farms filled with pirated music for you to get. Every song on Napster was on some other schlubs just like your hard drive. All Napster did was provide an index of the, what the songs were out there. At least, that was the theory behind Napster's side of the situation. The recording industry took a rather different view. They promptly sued Napster for copyright violations, and while that was working its way through the courts, they came after the downloaders. Again from The Guardian, quote, The heads of major record labels had gathered for a summit in the Washington offices of the Recording Industry Artists Association of America, the RIAA. Execs were encouraged to play a game that was informally, informally called Stump the Napster. In other words, to try and find at least one of their new singles that wasn't already being shared online. All were appropriately horrified, and an action was launched against Napster for breach of copyright. The first year of the new millennium was the first to register a dip in global record sales. That scared the labels, and before long, individual Napster users were being sued too. 18,000 all told, unquote. The RIAA began suing random users of Napsters for sharing files on their hard drives, and this was in addition to the suits they were in progress against Napster. Their big idea was to sue the very same people 
who bought their music. This is your big idea? Of course it was. This is the recording industry. They made billions by fucking over the little guy, so it just seemed natural to extend that to some college kids who had a few hundred files up on Napster. They wanted to strike terror into the hearts of the pirates when all they really accomplished was making people hate the fucking music industry even more if such a thing were possible. And also, also, the first thing we fucking learned is that if you fucking didn't leave Napster running all the time, the RIAA was never going to find you. So you dove in, you got your fucking music, and you got the fuck off Napster. And everyone overseas downloaded everything they could lay their hands on and became hubs for Napster. Because if you were overseas, you couldn't be sued by the RIAA. From a 2004 article on CNN.com, quote, a day after being sued for illegally sharing music files through the internet, a 12-year-old girl has settled with the Recording Industry Association of America. She's the first of 261 defendants to settle their lawsuits with the association. Brianna Lehara agreed Tuesday to pay $2,000, or about $2 a song she allegedly shared. I'm sorry for what I've done, Lehara said. I love music and I don't want to hurt the artist I love, unquote. Yeah, they sued a 12-year-old. That's a fucking chef kiss for not giving much of a fuck about anything customer-wise. The record labels didn't see us as customers, you see. They saw us as fucking a resource to be mined and then shrugged off when there was nothing left to be extracted. We all knew this. That's why we had an area of fucking qualm about pirating music in the first place. The artists themselves were split on the Napster issue. Pew did a poll in 2004 that asked the artists how they felt about sites like Napster and its successors, and the results were uh, interesting, to say the least. From Pew's website, quote, Artists are divided, but not deeply concerned about the file sharing that happens online. They want control over their creation, but most do not say internet piracy is a big threat. 64% of all artists and 67% of paid artists think that the copyright owner should have complete control over the use of that work. They are also clear who benefits the most from the current law. Half of all artists say that the copyright regulations generally benefit purveyors of artwork more than the original creators. Musicians echo those views. Still, just 28% of artists consider file sharing to be a major threat, and 30% of paid artists say this. Among the musicians in our online survey, two-thirds say file sharing poses a minor threat or no threat at all. 19% of digitized artists say that unauthorized copies of their work have been posted online. Most musicians in our online survey, even those who make a career out of music, have not experienced problems with others posting their work online. Artists think that unauthorized peer-to-peer -peer file sharing should be illegal, but most would go after the companies rather than the individual file sharers. 52% of all artists and 55% of all paid artists believed it should be illegal for internet users to share unauthorized copies of music and movies over file sharing networks compared to 37% of all artists and 35% of paid artists who say it should be legal, unquote. Perhaps the most famous artist reaction came from Metallica, who took file sharing as a personal insult. They angrily denounced downloaders and filed a lawsuit against Napster and had Napster ban anyone who shared a Metallica song on the service. That'll show him. It didn't. From UltimateClassicRock.com, quote, 
The backlash was immediate and severe against Metallica, perhaps because to bolster their case, the band tracked down 335,000 plus usernames of people they alleged downloaded their music illegally and asked Napster to block them. As a result, the lawsuit started being seen as a personal attack against fans or a greedy move, not a matter of principle or a disagreement between businesses. Some artists are in it for the pure art of music. Others are in it for the money, said student Wayne Chang, who managed Napster's online community bulletin boards. He told CNET, Metallica just showed which side of the line they're on. The online music company, August Nelson, set up a website called paylars.com that MTV reported let fans donate a dollar for each officially released Metallica song to make up for all the revenue the band thinks they're losing to MP3 trading. Aspiring animator filmmaker Bob Seska, who also got into the act, producing several videos mocking the lawsuit and the band members, played one of those at the beginning of the show, and created a Metallica short called Metallagreed for Motley Crue. Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered, and I think Metallica hogs, the, I think Metallica hogs, basic, bassist Nikki Six told MTV at the time. They make enough off t-shirts and concert events and other forms of corporation. I think that's not acceptable behavior for an artist to do that to their fans. Electra and Metallica's management, their puppet says they're puppeteering the guys of Metallica and they're fucking fans and I think it's fucked. To that, Metallica's then spokesman Gail Fine replied, if Motley Crue's on one side and we're on the other, you can guarantee that we're on the right side, unquote. Well, fuck you Gale. Look, by 2000, Metallica was washed out, if not washed up. And while they're still considered the poster children for selling out and fucking over their fans, they seem to be doing just fine in 2021, touring for middle-aged dad types on their Harleys who think Metallica still rocks. FYI, Metallica hasn't put out a decent album since Master of Puppets. I own their good albums, and then I downloaded those MP3s anyway, because fuck you, Metallica. Bunch of rich bitches. I, uh, I suspect you know how this story ends. After all, you're not currently downloading songs from Napster or Livewire or Kazaa. The RIAA sued them into oblivion. Napster tried to hold on. They allied themselves with Bertelsmann, a major record label, in hopes that they could find a way to monetize downloading songs instead of the free-for-all orgy of piracy. But the damage was done. The record companies were pissed. And they had lost a, a fuck ton of money. There was no way they were going to do business with Fannie and Parker. In 2001, Napster went dark. September 3rd of 2002, a federal judge blocked the sale of Napster and the entire business was forced to liquidate its assets. Mostly a couple of dorm fridges and a foosball table by this time. File sharing went decentralized and eventually wound up on BitTorrent, which is harder, though not impossible, to track and block, and benefits from having at least some legal uses. So that remains the primary pirate ship of the day. They still go after websites indexing torrents, that the fight has mostly moved from music to the movies. But the damage was done. The music industry fat cat days were dead. A lot of people proclaim this was the death of the music industry. A Wired article in 2003 said, quote, How much you want to bet that the entire music industry collapsed? He collapses, he asked me. And I mean soon, like the next five, ten years, kaboom. Truth is, it may happen even sooner. 
this year could determine whether the music business as we know it survives. In the first six months of 2002, CD sales fell 11% on top of a 3% decline the year before. Sales of blank CDs jumped 40% last year, while users of Kazaa, the biggest online file trading service, tripled in numbers. Meanwhile, the label's new legitimate online music services attracted fewer paying customers than the McDonald's in Times Square. As recently as 10 years ago, the media conglomerates that own record labels regarded them as cash cows, smaller than Hollywood, but more reliably profitable. Now all five major labels are either losing money or barely in the black, and the industry decline is turning into a plunge. In the next year, whether together or separately, the labels will have to set about totally reinventing the way they do business, a horribly difficult task for any institution. Sympathy is in short supply. Rightly or wrongly, record companies are detested by politicians for corrupting youth, by webcasters for demanding royalty, and by their customers for inflating prices. Musicians and songwriters are famous for loathing labels, and many have resisted licensing their songs to Music.net and Press Play. Both are under investigation for possible antitrust violations. Radio and MTV aren't in the music's corner. The labels through independent promotion programs effectively have to pay them to broadcast music, and the electronics industry's attitude towards the labels is summed up by Apple's slogan, Rip, Mix, Burn, which a music executive once told me translates into, fuck you record labels, unquote. People just weren't willing to pay 20 bucks for a CD with two good songs anymore. Indeed, people weren't willing to pay for physical music anymore, period. Mostly because of this dude right here. And we are introducing a product today that takes us exactly there. And that product is called iPod. Apple created iTunes, a digital record store in 1999, knowing they were going to drop the iPod. And they changed how music was bought and listened to. Instead of 20 bucks for a CD, you paid by the song and you paid about 99 cents. People glutted on free music, looked at that and said, Hells yeah. Because, you know, we still love music and we're totally willing to pay the artist, just not the record companies. From there, it was pretty much a straight line to downloads on your iPod to streaming on your phone. It only took 20 years for the music industry to get there. But they're there now because aside of aging Gen Xers buying vinyl, there is no other market. Which is why you're listening to this on Spotify right now. The music industry did find a way to make money off downloads, and while profits aren't where they were before Napster, they're good enough to satisfy their corporate masters. And also, the sheer convenience of a relatively low price for all the music ever has taken all the reasons we were pirating in the first place and tossed them out the window. Why download an MP3 when you can click play from a server on the cloud? If you want physical media, you can still get it. Few do. The exception being the vinyl renaissance. Again, the irony of that is just beautiful. Hell, they should bring back Columbia House Records. I mean, it kind of exists for DVDs, but no one's buying those anymore either. After all of this innovation, we've come full circle back to what's essentially radio. Ad-supported radio. The only difference is... You never have to wait for the DJ to play your favorite song. You can hear it anytime you want, which is great for you, but uh, not so hot for the DJ. 
which is why all of us have fucking podcasts now. Don't worry, though. The music industry is still fucking over the artist. Would you like to guess how much an artist makes per song streamed? Before you answer, let me explain to you the reasoning behind the record labels making so much more than the artist back in the day. You see, they would say they had to go to all the trouble of seeking out new talent, paying for them to record their albums in studios with all the attendant cost of studios and producers and technicians and things like that. Then they had to physically create the album, then get the album to market, promote the album both through ads and getting radio airplay, all of which was expensive, particularly the part where they were paying the radio DJs payola to get it on the air. And then, of course, the mafia got their cut. So, yeah, maybe they had an argument. But today, none of that applies, really. Artists largely find their own audience through social media. They produce their music in home studios. Shit, I've got a home studio. I don't even do music, but I could because I've got a mixing board and a computer. There's no physical media to produce, and the labels expect the artists to do all their own promotion. So given all of that, all of that sophistry and justification, what do you think the artists who are doing all the goddamn work are getting every time you click play on Spotify or watch a video on YouTube? All of it, Jerry! All of it! <laughs> oh, oh, my sweet summer children. No, 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 no. 99% of all the streams pay the person whose talent and effort and heart went into creating the song that you play. Okay, here you go, take the penny, shiny new penny. Yeah, well, they get one cent. A shiny new penny a play. Bitch, motherfucking over fucking assholes! Don't ask me why this is. It just is. Well... I guess, if I had to really say, there is a reason why this is. It's a little thing called capitalism. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. It is harder these days to steal music. I mean, this very podcast gets copyright hits on your YouTube cross posts almost every week for some five or ten second song blurb we play of John Denver. You fill up my senses. Like the night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain And then boom, we're demonetized on YouTube. But you know what? I'm fine with dead John Denver getting that pity. It's hard being dead. Speaking of dead, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods so other people can hear it. And uh, consider you dead to them for suggesting the kind of show that makes a fun of John Denver being dead. I'm not making fun of that. I'm a huge John Denver head. I can play all of his songs on guitar. All of my unkind words about artists no longer with us can be found on the social, the hell underscore podcast on Twitter, and the show name on Facebook. Did you know that you yourself can fight podcast piracy? Kick this show some money on Patreon. Patreon.com slash podcast just like John G. did this week. Thanks, John. You didn't have to do that, but let's just say the photos will be returned to you unopened and unseen by anyone. 
All of our racy shows are there for you to, for your extortionate purposes at whatthehellpodcast.com. And we are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings podcast who want you to know that no one is actually being blackmailed in any way to support this show. So for me, Dave, fuck you, Lars. Fuck you, James Bledsoe, producer. I only downloaded that Petula Clark song from Nutella because it was long out of print on vinyl. Gavin and all the fictional RIAA lawsuits on this show, we want to say, yeah, we were caught stealing once on LimeWire. It's just a simple fact. We seized the song and we didn't want to pay for it. We just downloaded that shit like it didn't matter because fuck the record industry. And we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.